Hi everyone and welcome to Marketplace Jungle. Brought to you by eChameleon, I'm your host, Jesse Ragg. Today's guest has built his entire career around the world of marketplaces. From a side hustle operating under an alias as a crazy stamp lady on eBay while working in the US Coast Guard, to helping expand Channel Advisors operations from the UK to Australia, and then leading the development of some of the Asia-Pacific region's biggest marketplaces. Mark Gray has multifaceted insights into the world of marketplaces, and it's been a real privilege to be able to bring him onto the show. In this episode, expect to learn how to negotiate the best rates when selling on non-Amazon marketplaces, actionable steps to help you expand to Australia, what it's like to build a marketplace from the ground up, what are the things that make a marketplace tick, and how understanding the marketplace's perspective on things can help you build a stronger working relationship. Mark, thank you very much for joining on Marketplace Jungle, where we like to explore the world of marketplaces beyond Amazon. You are head of marketplaces, plural, at Westfield Direct in Australia, and I'm very curious to hear about the plural element of that. But before we jump into it, I'd love for you to maybe tell us a little bit about your own journey into e-commerce, how you got started in the marketplace world and what brought you to us today. Amazing. Thanks, Jesse. And and thanks for the opportunity to come on and and speak to your audience. As anyone that knows me would know, I'm probably one of the most passionate people outside of yourself about uh, marketplaces in general and online. I've been involved within the online space now for almost 20 years, which kind of makes you and I a bit of dinosaurs, perhaps, in a very fledging and still small infant industry. But I started out, as, as you can tell from my accent, I'm originally not from Australia, but I'm actually originally from Colorado in the US. And you know, let's take a journey back to 2003. I was actually, at the time I was in the US Coast Guard, so I was in the military and I was stationed in San Francisco in California. And at the time I was going to school full-time, I was still in the military and I needed to find a side hustle. So how I got into e-commerce was I started selling on eBay. So a lot of my, I had bought many things over the year. Back then, eBay wasn't even that old, um, but I bought a lot of textbooks and random things on eBay. And um, my sister-in-law at the time was reselling old stamp collections. So old wooden rubber stamps that old ladies just go crazy for. It's very crafty, but very niche. And and they're they're all unique. And the the brand was called Stamping Up. I think they're still around. But uh, so I started getting all of her extra bits and bobs and ends and, and selling those on eBay. And the funny thing is, so my, the best part about being online is you're incognito, right? You could be anybody. So back then I created the, uh, the username on eBay, uh, very quickly became a pretty big power seller. So my, my name was crazy stamp lady. So, and all these, all these elderly women and, and crafty people were, were buying from a guy in the military living in San Francisco, um, thinking you had no clue who they were buying from. Thinking I was one of them, and I, I actually did a bit of research on it, learned learned quite a bit about it. I could answer all their questions. Uh, that really turned me on to like genuine, you know, understanding about customer service and how important it was, and, and you know, um, understanding the product as well. So um, that was kind of my my start into e commerce, and um, my my pseudo name um, through customer service on eBay was uh, my name's Mark, but my name was Margo. So they were dealing with Margo and they got the world's best customer service. And I, and I kind of got my nose bloodied that way as far as, you know, understanding the early days of, of marketplaces. Right. So um, from there I, I moved to the UK and, and lived in London and, and worked for a software as a service uh, company that actually helps people sell on eBay. That was the only marketplace in the UK back then before Amazon even launched. 
and uh, helped uh, kind of grow their business for a number of years. And then had the opportunity to move across to Australia to help op- open up their operations uh, here down in Melbourne, Australia. And uh, yeah, just really started not only really focusing on marketplaces, but focusing on just e-commerce in general and and really learned about my passion for cross-border trade and the opportunities, you know, getting retailers to understand the opportunities of, you know, the fact that it's actually not that hard to sell cross-border. There's a couple key fundamentals. And if you get it right, you can really own it and you can really open up your horizons and do quite well, not just on marketplaces, but on your own website. So um, to make a long story longer, from there, I actually moved on to launching marketplaces myself. Some of the audience would be aware of catch.com.au. So it's the catch group marketplace. So I was hired by by that company to launch the marketplace, um, which is now catch.com.au, which is owned by West Farmers, which is one of the larger marketplaces here in Australia. And from there, moved across to helping to launch marketplace in New Zealand called the market.com. If, if you're not familiar with it, definitely check it out. It's, it's a very high-end marketplace. And, and from there, I spun off to, unfortunately, a marketplace that didn't last, which was called Click Central. Um, we lost our funding, unfortunately, last year towards the end of COVID, but launched a marketplace very quickly with around 2.5 million products in about three and a half, almost four months. So it's probably the world's fastest marketplace launch. Built a really solid team around that. We we were very happy what we were able to do in a short time. But fast forward to today, I'm currently head of marketplaces for Center Group, which owns Westfield here in Australia and New Zealand. And Westfield is the large shopping centers that folks might see around the world. And we launched a marketplace about a year ago and are really, again, focusing on that brand experience, allowing brands to really own what they're doing omni-channel. So both in centers, in our shopping centers and online. So you've gone from selling on marketplaces to helping other retailers sell on marketplaces and expand internationally via marketplaces to moving to the other side of the world to build marketplaces from brands which already existed and then starting marketplaces up from scratch with names that people have never heard of to now taking a brand which everyone knows and turning it into a marketplace. Absolutely. Wow. That, that, you, you made it so much more concise than oh, I did. I, Absolutely, I yep. trimmed out all of the, all of the good stuff, but I, I, I had to just kind of summarize that for myself because that's a crazy 20 year journey of marketplaces. There's not much else in there. There's not much other fat to trim out there that isn't marketplaces. So it's, it's really, I'm a little bit lost as to where to start because obviously we want to talk about marketplaces beyond Amazon. And so far you've not mentioned Amazon once, which is great because there's enough content out there about Amazon. But I'm, I'm curious then from, from your experience, because I recently spoke with Jason Wyatt, who is one of the founders at a company called Marketplacer from Australia, who you probably know, they help established businesses turn into marketplaces. And one of the things that he said was that theoretically any brand website, which is generating about 10 million a year in revenue, could consider becoming a marketplace. Obviously, there's there's a spectrum there. And the more traffic you've got, the more successful that marketplace is likely to be. But from your experience of building all of these marketplaces, what are some of the steps that actually go into that? What? And I'm asking because from the experience of a brand or a retailer that's looking at selling on marketplaces, it's often important for them to understand how the marketplaces actually tick and what hurdles the marketplaces face as a business. Sure. So I'd say when, when I'm evaluating whether to launch a marketplace or being part of one or partner with marketplaces, and when, when brands are considering launching their own, the, the number one thing you need to ask yourself is, um, 
customer acquisition and you know database. So whilst someone might have a good brand, and and I agree with with Mr. Wyatt's assertion of you know if you have ten million dollars of of turnover, yeah, potentially you could launch a marketplace, but. I would counter that to say that you need to have at least a very large active database. And by active, I mean a database that is purchasing from you at least once every one to two months, not once a year. So a lot of, a lot of businesses you'll see, oh, we have a 10 million database, but that's people that you know, all time have ever purchased from them or, or you know, over a year ago. It needs to be an active database that you can activate ongoing through various campaigns through Marketplace because that's really what it is. Marketplaces are based on ongoing campaigns grabbing attention about new products that you've put on the marketplace and, and, and new offerings and keeping that excitement because it's not just price. Price is a big part of it, but keeping that excitement and keeping people coming back to you time and again. So I think the number one thing to get back to that is, do you have a large enough database? And if not, do you have enough investment and a runway of at least two to five years to build that database? Because that's about how long it takes. So I will say to the the marketplace that I helped to launch before this, you know, Click Central, which unfortunately didn't didn't make it through the runway. We had a pretty good database, but we also had to be very aggressive in edu- re-educating that database to a different proposition than they were used to. So we had the database. It was about 2.3 million active users, which for Australia is pretty good. But we were also trying to introduce a new concept to them. And that's where a lot of the challenges happen. So I, I would I would counter that by saying one of the biggest things if you're considering a marketplace is that database. And if not, you have the runway and the means to pay for the customer acquisition. So here in Australia, I think in the UK, I wouldn't know the number in the US, I, I do know the number. But in Australia, customer acquisition for marketplace at the moment is typically around $89 Aussie dollars um, per acquisition, right? And the lifetime value of the average customer in Australia at the moment is around um, $280. So it's a bit finicky. There's not much room there to, to work with, right? In the U.S., and this this is a stat going back a couple years ago. This is pre-COVID. So it may have changed, and certainly it probably has since then. But acquisition there with, with and this is before even Google has gotten even more expensive, and Facebook, social media, their acquisition cost was about 74 US dollars. Average spend was about 500. So you got a lot more out of a customer, but it's very expensive to acquire customers. So hopefully that answers your question, but that would be one of the number one things. And that's obviously something which I think most brands will be quite familiar with anyway. So they would appreciate that. And that's why they would be looking at a marketplace as an option to expand to, especially with the Australian market being what it is. It's quite for a brand to get boots on the ground and probably expand to Australia from an operational perspective. So marketplaces is usually the first step for them to do so. And we were talking about this before we pressed record, but the number of marketplaces in Australia has just exploded. I remember a few years ago, it was it was only eBay and then Catch came along and you, know, you obviously did a good job of turning that or transforming that from like a daily deals site, which I personally used to get hook, line, and sinker, and I was probably one of the biggest customers back in the, ta- back in the day, through to being a, a good contender as top marketplace or one of the top marketplaces in Australia. And then I personally turned my eye away from Australia as an expansion option when when Brexit hit and a lot of retailers were generally struggling with export and then obviously COVID hit. And now you look back and there's, what, 40-odd marketplaces in Australia? Yeah, I counted yesterday and I had to go through this twice, but it's 41 at the moment. And that's, you know, that's just from four or five years ago or to your point, there was only a handful but what we are seeing here, not just here in Australia, but globally as well, in a lot of regions, is the – and Marketplace plays a part in this. So the discussion that you had with Mr. Wyatt, but then also Miracle as well and, and other 
marketplace and service tools that have opened up a lot of niche opportunities for marketplaces to to open up. So here in Australia, as an example, you have a business, for instance, called Barbecues Galore, which actually is a marketplace or customer that, you know, they're very niche. All they do is, you know, they, they play very heavily within barbecues and accessories, but then they've gone outside a little bit of like tents and you have to be a little bit more finite on the subcategories you'll offer, but they're very they're very niche. All the way to more expanded niche marketplaces, the likes of you mentioned B and Q in the UK. Our equivalent here is a company called Bunnings, um, and Bunnings, uh, you know, very very large DIY type of business, but they've been able to do that as well. So they're still very focused on their key and core categories, but they've been able to expand. If you're buying paint and flooring and something else for a nursery that you might be building, yeah, maybe you want to buy a cot. Maybe you want to buy, let's kit out the whole place, right? At, at the same time. So it's those type of marketplaces that, I, that, I, that we're really tracking as far as getting a lot of traction and not just being the marketplace of everything to everybody, which obviously we know, I will mention Amazon now, which you know Amazon certainly aspires to be, but any experience that I've had in, in the last couple of years in particular with Amazon, eBay to an extent, is it's there's so much on offer. Unless you're an expert marketplace shopper, which I, I consider myself to be, but I still get confused, it's really hard to find something that that you're really looking for. So unless somebody's paying a lot of money and paying top dollar to Amazon to promote it to get to the top or to be a sponsored um, ad, it's really hard to find sometimes what you're looking for and to filter down. So that's where some of these smaller more niche marketplaces for, for any, you know, of retailers who are listening to this, who are looking at new marketplaces to list onto. These niche ones really have a lot of power because you will, without having to pay for it, you're going to get that visibility and not get lost in the crowd, if that makes sense. So in terms of cross-border expansion, because this is an area that you've got a lot of expertise in or a lot of experience in as well, the logistics element is obviously a big one when a non-Australian retailer is looking at Australia as an expansion option. Can you tell me what steps a retailer should take when they're looking at expanding to Australia specifically, if it's whether it's an American or a European or, or a British business that has their eyes set on the Australian market, they're like 40 marketplaces, okay, now it's suddenly interesting for us to expand there. What do they have to do? What's what's involved? And I'm, I'd like to go a bit nitty gritty, thinking about tax, legal, logistics, customer service, customer expectations on de- delivery, you name it. Sure. So I can talk to Australia and New Zealand, which is good. So it kind of opens up two two countries there, which I think both, if you're going to do Australia, you might as well do New Zealand because it's not that much harder. The logistics, especially from Europe, uh, they range within 50 cents of each other for parcels. So it's about the same shipping time and cost of doing business. The good news is both countries over the last couple of years have shifted to a, a very simplistic model in the past, depending on what you were selling and depending on the value of the product or parcel that you were selling into Australia or New Zealand varied, right? So if you're selling a textbook and it was valued under $1,000, you'd get taxed X amount. There were, they also used to have a threshold of $1,000 in Australia. If, if it was anything under $1,000, it would come in tax-free. All of a sudden, if you're selling a laptop for $1,400, then you'd be spending upwards of $250 in taxes, and it just didn't make sense. So they've simplified that over the last couple of years, and now it's just a flat tax, which makes it very easy. I think it's probably fairly similar in Europe right now of that simplicity of everything's taxed at the same 10% rate. Marketplace is what they do now, and it, it makes it super easy. So you can list your products into, we'll use the example of Catch or even Kogan in, in Australia, you can list your products there. And what they do is you list your products X GST or X 
tax X VAT, right? Um, when the product sells, it's being sold X tax. And at the checkout, the marketplace is now responsible for collecting the tax on your behalf. So what happens is, let's say the product was $10. So you've listed it for $10 at checkout. The customer is paying for, maybe it's, let's assume it's free shipping, probably not on $10 item, bad example, but you know, let's assume it's free shipping and the marketplace will collect that $1 of tax on your behalf. And they're now on the hook to pay the government, the tax authority within that country to pay on your behalf. And that what that does is that make sure that your item is free and clear. It doesn't get stopped at customs anymore. There's no questions about it because based on the label that's printed from that marketplace, it has that number on there. It scans. You're good to go. And it's just very simplistic. So does that mean that the pricing which is shown on the marketplace front end to the consumer, is that the American style of price before tax and then they get surprised with 10% being added on top when they get to the shopping cart or? It is. Yep, it is. So so for for consumers, um, you know, marketplaces have had to do a really good job here of, of over explaining that to customers. It's, it's kind of, I think a lot of New Zealand and um, Aussie customers are used to that now. They just kind of expect if it's, if it's overseas, it's going to be added in, but it's, yeah, it makes it a lot more easy for, yeah, for everybody involved and customers. It's the same here with services. So a lot of services within Australia, as an example, will be XGST until you actually get your invoice from, let's say the plumber or electrician. And now all of a sudden it's got that extra 10%. It's just, it's common knowledge. It's, it's easy for people to get their heads around. I think it's, I think it's hard for, for retailers to get their heads around the idea of offering that. I mean, obviously in the US, that's very common. You go into it, if you're traveling to the US as a European and you try and buy something and then suddenly it ends up being, you know, 7% more than you were expecting it to be. And you've got to do that quick bit of math at the, at the cash register that can be confusing, but especially as a retailer who's used to making sure that their price is Clearly, they're aiming for 99. They don't want to have 24, 23 as their list price. It's it's good to know that the consumers in Australia and New Zealand are sort of expecting that and that they don't have to worry about it too much. It's not that they have to clean up all of their pricing for that. Yeah, and what we found is through through the various feeds, and I'm, I'm sure perhaps eChameleons come across this with the business in, in which you work, is that a lot of the feeds, there's solutions to help retailers overcome that for particular feeds into particular countries. So there, there is automation that can help with that to make it more streamlined. Because, yeah, it can be confusing from the retailer side. If they're working, it used to work in a certain way, and that now all of a sudden they have to um, make considerations for pricing to get those nice round numbers that we want. Absolutely. So the the other thing that, that I thought was interesting, Justin, I'm not sure if you guys have been tracking this at all, has been obviously with the current economic situation globally, the challenges that it seems like every country is facing, every consumer around the globe with, you know, not only inflation, but, you know, certainly interest rates and, and the fact that, you know, raising capital and expenditures for retailers and, and everyone is is only gone up. It's been interesting to watch kind of a, a parity shift here, a paradigm shift of first party to third party merchants. So, you know, I guess to, to go into detail on that, um, here in Australia, we've been seeing quite a few marketplaces struggle that play in the field of first party and third party products. So to explain that for somebody who's online who may not 
understand, you know, products that first party that they're selling themselves and also products that's being sold by a third party, like an, another merchant that just happens to list their products on the marketplace. For the marketplaces that we've seen that do first and third party, they're all struggling at the moment, but they're only struggling. Their third party business is actually growing quite successfully, whereas the first party has gone backwards quite a bit. And I think a lot of that's just around the cost of, you know, the challenges that we saw towards the end of, you know, COVID with logistics and, and shipping and, and warehousing and general costs going up of holding products has only gotten more expensive. Whereas having a third party, you know, merchant where you never even have to touch the product, it's just listed on your site is, has become that much more appealing. We've been kind of definitely seeing that here locally. Is that something that you're seeing? And yeah, um, just curious. We had a prime example of that just a couple of weeks ago with the marketplace called MyToys, which in Germany is arguably the biggest retailer or the biggest website from a consumer perspective for buying toys and basically any products for kids and, and babies. And MyToys is part of the Otto Group. So it's not as if it didn't have any big backing behind it. They have about 800 employees and as a marketplace, it was performing very well. Anyone that I've spoken to, any German retailer I've spoken to, would count my toys um, as one of their top marketplace channels. And obviously, yeah, European countries, Germany in particular, are quite. There's quite a few marketplaces. They're quite segmented for a retailer. There's a lot of options to be selling on, so it tends to be quite category specific and very price sensitive. But the Interesting thing about my toys is it's exactly as you described. They had both a 1P and a 3P element. And as a retailer, they were even selling on other marketplaces, both within the auto group and outside of the auto group, as well as competing against their marketplace sellers. But it's interesting to see how, I mean, uh, any regular listeners, listeners I'm sorry, because you've, you've heard me say this before, but if you're building a business model where you only get to keep 15% of what comes through the door, you've got to make sure that there's a lot coming through the door because looking at the top line, you can see, oh yeah, look at all this revenue coming in. But if you only get to keep 15% of that before before taxes and before everything and before all of your other costs, yeah, you've got to have a lot coming through the door. And I think that's one of the downsides, I think, of becoming a marketplace as a, as a retailer is it can all kind of, the lines get blurred between what's actually profitable and what's not. Yeah, absolutely. No, th thanks for that um, feedback because I, you know, obviously kind of wanted to verify what we're seeing here locally in Australia and, and New Zealand. But then also, you know, when you look at the the likes of Walmart in the U.S., I think they've been able to counter that quite successfully, even compared to Amazon uh, in the U.S. where, you know, they've really um, focused on pushing third party more and more coming out of COVID and, you know, realizing amidst COVID that they were having challenges around, um, getting products to their shores and getting them into their centers, really harnessing that. So I think that's that's one of the, the cool things about marketplaces that that I'm passionate about as well as you have that ability to to really use those levers, right? You can turn ratchet things up and ratchet things back as you need. Obviously watching Walmart do that over the last couple of years of pushing harder on the third party to really overcome that that lack of depth and breadth during challenging moments. And I'm quite sure they're going to be able to ratchet that back down and make more margins as their own products open up even more so. Whereas I think we kind of saw Amazon double down on first party a little bit more and start to charge a lot more for um, uh, promoted products during that time period, making it more painful for third party to get recognition. So it's an interesting topic. I love following the financials of, of marketplaces because they all seem to, at least in my opinion, what I've seen over the years is they, they flow, um, much like 
the financial world does. You know, you see something happen in the U.S. or in Europe. Sure enough, two months later, we start to see it here, the flow on effect. And then you start seeing Southeast Asia and other places. But yeah, I think it's interesting to definitely follow that. It's funny because the first mover in that space was Tesco, which obviously had a very well-performing marketplace a few years ago. And then from one day to the next, they closed it down. And anyone that was sort of performing well on there, you know, I, I, I know a few of our customers lost a significant amount of their revenue from one day to the next, just because this marketplace was like, yeah, you know what? Sorry, guys, no more marketplace. And I know there's been some rumblings around about the Tesco marketplace potentially reopening. I think there's a lot of opportunity there for really anyone that's got a decent amount of traffic to become a marketplace. But the one of the biggest issues is, is that a lot of them just try and become another Amazon. And I think this is where people like Decathlon and B&Q are doing well, is that they they stick to their lane. You know, Decathlon is a sports marketplace. Like, yeah, okay, you can you can buy a tent. And then if you're buying a tent, then maybe you buy some camping equipment. And is that is this enamel mug still sports? Yeah, okay, maybe it's a bit of a stretch, but they're not going to start selling laptops probably. And the same as B&Q, you know, they've got the best, in my opinion, the, the single best domain name in the world, you know, DIY.com. Like, how great is that? They're not going to start selling high-end fashion but if they do well with with the building segment, which is a very underserved segment in the marketplace or in the e-commerce space because of a lot of the complexities around things like how do you manage 4 million SKUs when it's a bunch of different combinations of material weight and length of screws and bolts, that, which each individually sell for maybe seven pence. And it's just not worth going through the trouble of trying to figure out how to handle all of that. Mano Mano obviously do a good job of trying to break through that barrier, but it is generally an underutilized area. But I'm curious from your perspective, because you've built marketplaces both on the miracle technology and the DIY way, so to say, why would a business which is becoming a marketplace, why would they choose one over the other? What are the pros and cons of a out-of-the-box solution like a miracle versus doing it yourself? Yeah, so, um, you know, to your point, I've, I've had experience um, launching marketplaces on on through various ways. So I've, I've launched three marketplaces using Miracle. I've launched one doing it DIY, to your point there, on our own. And I have explored looking at, and we've done evaluation around Marketplace or other tools that are out there, which are all all pretty good. They're getting better, better and better as, as time goes on. I think the the reason why I would actually well let me let me talk about the pause and negatives of both. So the positive of doing it yourself is you own it, right? So anytime that you go into a software as a service type of relationship, there's an ongoing cost and overall cost that a lot of people don't think about when they're getting into of how do we what's our exit plan for this software, right? So is this something that we're happy to be paying for? 20 years down the road, 10 years down the road. And if not, what is our exit plan? Are we going to have to build something in the background anyway, right? Is it going to meet our needs? The other thing is the the fact that when you're using a software that you can't control, it's, it's trying to serve a multitude of businesses. So you're oftentimes down the totem pole as far as when you put a feature request in, right? So it can take sometimes a couple of years to get a really, what you would think simple, but realistic request through, even though you're spending quite a bit of money for that software as a service solution. When you own and when you build it yourself, one of the biggest challenges is it takes a lot of time. You do get a lot more control out of it because you're building it exactly what you want, all the bells and whistles. Typically, you would do that when you're building it on top of an existing platform 
that is yours, that is bespoke. I would not recommend to launch a marketplace on, if you're on a platform like Hybris or Magento or, you know, even a more complex platform, it's probably best to go with an out-of-the-box solution. But if you have a your own bespoke platform, it's much easier to, to build around the complexities of, of what's already been invested in, and then you own it ongoing. And it also makes it much easier to duplicate. So if, you know, if you were to, when I was at themarket.com, we actually did this with one of the companies that, one of their sister companies, which they own called uh, OneDay.CodaNZ, which is a business that they had acquired, and they were able to actually move the technology that they'd already built onto this new platform quite seamlessly. And they owned it. There was no extra cost. There was a little bit of work involved, uh, but that's the power of, of owning it. Um, but conversely, that that took us, you know, a good eighteen months just to get up and running. Whereas using somebody like Miracle or a marketplacer, you can get something up and running in a couple months if you have the right team, skilled team. You can get stuff up and running pretty quickly. And then the likes of, you know, my personal experience with Miracle, really smart business, great company to work with. We were the first um, company to actually launch them in this region properly using Miracle. And this is going back when I launched the Catch Marketplace about five, six years ago. And I'll tell you what, there was a lot of tough yards back then because, you know, it's a French company and, you know, there, there was a lot of flying of people out from France to kind of try to help us get our heads around it. Fast forward to today. They've expanded even more so globally. They have a lot of people on the ground here in Australia and globally as well with those local expertise. And they've really started to think outside of the box of just being very European focused. And they have some really successful case studies in South America, Sweden, or Norway, Southeast Asia. They're really starting to to make some good ground. So hopefully that answers the it question. It absolutely yet. does. It absolutely does. Now, Mark, I'm conscious of, of time because I know you've got to run. I do have one final question that I would love to get your opinion on. If I'm a brand or retailer looking at marketplaces beyond Amazon, obviously one of the first things that I'll notice if I've only ever sold on Amazon before is that there's actually a thing called seller support. There's usually a team of people that are there that I can actually have a relationship with that uh, there to help me succeed on this new marketplace, which is something which is quite unusual if you've grown up selling on Amazon. One of the biggest factors is the cost element, the the commission that I as a retailer would have to pay to you as a marketplace. Unlike Amazon, a lot of marketplaces, a lot of other marketplaces tend to have a bit more flexibility around that. And it tends to be a bit more about making sure that it's just a win-win for everybody. But I'm curious if you have any tips for a retailer when it comes to negotiating the fees that they're going to pay a marketplace to help them make it a vi- to help make it a viable option for both parties. Do you have any advice there? Absolutely, and that's that's one of the toughest things, right? So if if you go into like some some of these larger marketplaces, again to use Amazon as an example, but there's others who just will not budge. They say, hey, we're Consumer electronics, tough luck, it's 12%, even though anybody that sells consumer electronics knows the average margin, if you're lucky, is 6 to 7%, sometimes less than that. So I would definitely take advantage of some of these up-and-coming marketplaces and go in there, be open and honest with them, because I've done this with my teams in the past, and it's worked out really well. You go in and you show, you show them straight away, here's what my margins are. I need you to work 
under this so we can be profitable and let's work together as in partnership. So if you, to your point, Jesse, that's the power of some of these other marketplaces. You have that one-on-one relationship where you can pick up the phone, talk to somebody, negotiate it out with them. And sometimes, you know, I've, I've done deals with some of the largest merchants that we brought on board to catch that are still successful today, doing multi-millions of dollars years down the road because we were able to get them on at that lower percentage for the first year. And then, you know, with the agreement of like, hey, once we hit X amount of GMV or success, maybe it needs to go up a couple percentage points that way we can win as well, right? So if you go into the into those agreements with that synergy, I've found more times than not, it, it works so well both ways because I know as a marketplace manager as well, my marketing person can pick up the phone any day of the week and say, hey, we have this, you know, we have this great, um, I don't know, flash sale happening within consumer electronics or fashion. And I know we can always get the best deal from them because we've done right by them at the beginning. So that those true relationships, I think, is, is what's really important. And the other thing to, to point out here, for those that are thinking about launching a marketplace, if and maybe you're not involved with marketplaces yet, hand on heart, I can tell you marketplaces is the best way to expand your business with the minimal amount of risk, especially if you're using a software as a service business that can help you scale to, to multiple marketplaces like, like eChameleon. You can really dip your toe in the water and multiple cross-border opportunities across, you know, I know some merchants that are in 150 plus marketplaces and they're managing it all successfully with minimal risk because you only get charged when you sell a product. So even though your category fee for what you're selling may be 10, 12, 15%, you're only being charged when you sell that product as compared to any other marketing, you know, social, Google paid or otherwise, you only pay when when you have success and it's a win-win for everybody. What a great way to wrap it up. Mark, thank you so much for taking the time. I know it's late where you are, so I really appreciate it. And yeah, I look forward to doing it again another time. Jesse, what a great podcast. Thanks for spreading the great word. And um, yeah, if anybody wants to reach out to, to me, happy to have any discussions or give feedback. You can find me on LinkedIn at Mark A. Gray. And uh, all the best to you and your team, Jesse. And, and thanks again. Well, thanks for taking the time out of your day to listen in to Marketplace Jungle. I really enjoyed talking to Mark, and I hope you got as much out of it as I did. If you'd like to recommend a guest or apply to be a guest yourself, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Until then, I'll see you next time on Marketplace Jungle.